Welcome to the podcast with its finger on the pulse of all things tax. The Tax Factor from Blick Rothenberg with Heather Sell and Neil Lancaster. Welcome to The Tax Factor, the weekly podcast from Blick Rothenberg. Each week, our team looks at the news and updates in the world of tax and provides an analysis of what it might mean for you and your business. Joining me this week is Neil Lancaster, a partner in our private client team. It's his first time on The Tax Factor, but he'll be a familiar face to anyone who's watched or listened to our budget coverage previously. Neil, we said last week you always have an interesting take on tax matters, so it's great to have you here. Thanks, Heather. Always good to chat with you. Let's start with pensions, shall we? I mean, Nimesh and I chatted last week about the lifetime allowance quite a bit, but what's been in the news this week has been the triple lock. And particularly, we've had the statistics on average wage increases, and there was a rumour in today's times that perhaps the Chancellor won't apply the triple lock in full. Well, I mean, fundamentally, what the rumour mill is spouting at the moment is that ministers are considering whether to put some kind of one-off earnings link that tracks underlying level of pay growth, which fundamentally is likely to exclude the one-off exceptional pay rises that have gone through the public sector. According to the Times and a couple of other outlets today, that may take the rate of increase in the payout of the state pension down from 85 to 7.8%. So still a very respectable increase but would keep the increase in line with earnings rather than rather than inflation. I think the, the problem we've got with the triple lock, which, as I'm sure everybody knows, pensions rise by the highest of average earnings, inflation now on a CPI measure or two and a half percent. And now that inflation's well above that, the question is, which is higher, inflation or earnings? But they tend not to rise at the same time. So last year, inflation was high and pensions went up by 10.1 percent. This year, it's earnings that have crept up. And therefore, it looks as if we'll be getting a rise in the state pension of something around about 8 percent, perhaps just below or just over. Now, as someone who's looking forward to getting my state pension before too long, that's all very nice. But I have to say, it doesn't feel entirely fair to my younger colleagues like you, Neil. And what what do you think about the state pension? Well, thanks for that, Heather. You've made my day. So at the moment, it's 68. But who knows what that is likely to be with the passage of time and change in legislation. With ageing populations and problems with birth rates, I think that the state pension per se let alone the triple lock, is going to be completely unsustainable. That being said, you know, the real downside scenario for pensioners right now is that the Chancellor abolishes the triple lock or indeed any lock whatsoever and effectively puts any increases in state pensions annually at the whim of any particular Chancellor of the day, which clearly could be go range from no increase to any particular percentage the Chancellor chooses. I personally think in a cost of living crisis and a prolonged period of high inflation, that is going to be rather unlikely. I would agree with that. The triple lock came in after a lot of dithering about whether people should use RPI or CPI to rate pensions. And I think there was one year when the increase to the pension was about 25p and everybody had a fit at that. The Institute for Fiscal Studies, the IFS, put out quite an interesting report last week. And they were saying that one of the snags at the moment is that nobody can actually predict what the cost of the triple lock 
will be, it could be as much as 45 billion by 2050, which starts to be a huge proportion of government spending. I think most consensus estimates put it at between 38 and 50 billion. And the, the issue with that, as William Hague, in my view, has quite rightly pointed out, is that it's completely unsustainable, given that we have to have some form of plan for the NHS, which is still crying out for further funding, given that we still don't have a plan for social care. No party really has a plan for social care, which is a burning problem for any government in the future and a costly one at that. So ultimately, what that means is, is that we either have to have tax rises in the future, which will further decimate growth, or it will mean that we have to to cut benefits to working class individuals, which again, most individuals will accept isn't an acceptable outcome. I think you're right. I think pensions, therefore, have been very much in the news this week, but there aren't any easy answers. What I did think was interesting was Rishi Sunak saying he didn't fully commit to the triple lock beyond the next election. And I think Labour Party as well are starting to be a bit more cautious about what they're saying. They're starting to realise they're going to have to take a long, hard look at this over the next few years. That's right. And and I think, you know, being realistic, it's electoral suicide for either party to come out in terms of removing the triple lock unilaterally. This is probably going to require some form of coming together um, and acknowledging that we have a problem in the medium to long term and agreeing collectively that this is the right thing to do. If we go back to what we were saying earlier, if we accept that the removal of the triple lock is unlikely, and even if ministers do consider a one-off reduction or amendment to the way in which they calculate the growth in the state pension for this year, it's not without doubt that they could find a middle ground in the medium term where rather than have a triple lock, they have either a, a single or a double lock. And that wouldn't be disastrous because all that would mean is that pensions still increase with inflation. It just means that they wouldn't increase by any more than inflation, which, again, in the current environment and with the strain on public finances, to most people would seem fair, I think. Turning to a different topic, there were a couple of cases that we spotted over the last week on high income child benefit charge. This is the piece of the tax legislation which claws back part of somebody's child benefit if the income of one person in a couple is over 50,000. As I said over 10 years ago when it was introduced, it's incredibly complex and it catches a lot of people out. There were a couple of cases where taxpayers definitely got caught out. The first one was a case where the taxpayer didn't realise his income was over 50,000. You might think that's difficult, but you have to calculate income, including benefits in kind and bonuses. And he didn't realise for a couple of years that once you added in the benefits, he was over the threshold. Interestingly, as soon as he did realise, he or his partner phoned HMRC and immediately stopped claiming child benefit. And they thought that was the end of it. What they didn't realise was that they had an obligation to report for earlier years and to pay the, the charge. The tribunal upheld the assessments. They said, yes, you do have to pay this, but they were very sympathetic on penalties. They felt that the taxpayer had done his best to notify HMRC and also that HMRC's comms were very poor. There was no guidance on the tax return to make sure the taxpayer was aware what they had to do once they realised their income was over 50000 The other case we saw was a real elephant trap for parents who sadly separate. The case runs along the same vein and, and highlights really the complexity of the child benefit charge in the legislation. What is intended to be a relatively simple payout for low-earning families is actually a bit of a death trap for anyone filing a personal tax return. And as somebody who files clients' personal tax returns, I can tell you it's it's not easy. And many clients fall into the trap of either not knowing that 
either they or their spouses are claiming it, or they forget that it's something that needs to be reported through their tax return, because it's not typically something that would ordinarily, in their minds, be something that they need to report. So I think the status quo is a bit untenable, to be honest, and very complicated. And one final point on that, linking back to pensions. If you know your income's going to be over 60000 and you decide not to claim child benefit, you should register for it and then not claim it. That might all sound like a bit of admin hassle, but what that does is get you the national insurance credits which count towards your state pension. That's really important. M- many people don't realise that they can register for it, but not actually make a claim for payments. And of course, it gives you those valuable qualifying years towards your state pension entitlement. Assuming, of course, we get a state pension at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. Turning to our third topic for today, um, during COVID, I think it's fair to say that the Treasury and HMRC reacted very quickly to provide support to a lot of taxpayers and businesses, and particularly there were COVID grants available. But what we're now seeing is the backlash on that, that there's quite a significant level of fraud that's been discovered. That's right, Heather. And my understanding of this is that much of the, or many of the problems that arose from this and many of and much of the fraud arose in the first tranche of these schemes that were really paid out out before May 2020 as a result of a failure to conduct payment checks, I think due to the cost of actually conducting those payment checks, along with a raft of fraud schemes, particularly in some of the business COVID grant schemes. I think it's fair to say that whilst the government are talking the talk in terms of collecting cash on fraudulently claimed grants, the the actual amount collected as a percentage of the estimated amount of fraud is I think around one or two percent. It's very, very low. You can understand that they wanted to make payments quickly, but it does seem astonishing to me that they've not been quicker to identify and chase down the fraud which has occurred. I can understand the Public Accounts Committee getting pretty fed up with them over that. I understand this was a matter of economic survival at the time, not just for government, but for households and businesses themselves. Effectively, the um, local authorities and government were, were effectively making the rules up as they went along because there wasn't enough time to put processes in place. And as a result, we've got this problem. I understand there are also some legalities in some of the schemes around the collection of some of those payments as well, should um, should they be identified. But I think it's a very difficult issue. Although there have been some prosecutions, I haven't seen that much activity in the space over the last six months. And finally, last week, Nimesh and I were talking about the reopening of the HMRC telephone lines. And Nimesh made the very astute comment that he thought that HMRC were really trying to push people away from the phone and into using digital services instead. This week's news, HMRC has hired an IT company that's going to ramp up the use of digital digital communications in a bid to stop taxpayers using post and phone rather than online services. Clearly cheaper for HMRC. You can understand that they want people to go online if they can. I do hope they're not forgetting about all the people who can't manage to go online. One of the things I would point out is that, you know, HMRC's use of technology historically hasn't been great and hasn't gone very well. To take an example of one of my clients over the past month, they've been starting to receive text messages from HMRC to notify them that they got letters in the post or that they need to take a particular action. In theory, that's great. But the problem is that most taxpayers and most of my clients believe those texts to be fraudulent. And the case for that isn't helped when the text messages themselves are riddled with grammatical errors. So I think that there's a long way to go before HMRC is at a point where the digital works to its full potential. But I agree with what Namesh was saying last week. All the signs are is that HMRC is pushing forward with its push towards 
towards digital over the next five years. I think we've run out of time for today. So I'll just end with a reminder that the Treasury have announced that the autumn statement will be on November the 22nd. That's the day that we record the tax factor. So we'll bring you a budget special with our thoughts and insights on the Chancellor's statement. Many thanks, Neil, for joining me today on the tax factor. I hope you can join us again soon. You can hear all our previous episodes of the tax factor on the Blick Rothenberg website. We release a new episode every Friday on all the popular podcast platforms. That's all for this week. I'm Heather Self. Goodbye. That's all for this episode of The Tax Factor. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try Brave Business, our podcast series for entrepreneurs. Find it wherever you get The Tax Factor or on the Blick Rothenberg website. The Tax Factor. <laughs>